Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Ah, it's Toys on Sunday show. I'm Andrew Donson. Thank you so much for joining us on this recapping of all the things that happened in the week that was on Hertel. We had five great interviews. This week we had Gabby Hoffman on conservation. Uh, Jason Downey from down in Georgia. He's the chair of the Georgia State Board of Education, talking a little politics from down there. Joe Zemanski joined the program. We recapped the Ohio primary and Indiana primary and look at all the other primaries coming up for the rest of the month in may bert lyco our attorney friend uh editor-in-chief emeritus of ordinary-times.com it's the turn down the noise turn down the caterwauling explanation of the alito draft of the supreme court decision on abortion you must listen to that great grown folk discussion on that then finally elise amidro came on we talked healthcare, american healthcare: the good the bad the ugly the indifferent the crazy bureaucracy the stuff we do well the stuff we don't do well and the bomb that's getting ready to go off in 2026 if we don't do some real meaningful reform on that. Five wonderful guests. You're going to get them all all day today on this very special edition of Heard Tell Twice on Sunday. Enjoy. Back to Heard Tell, one of our favorites, one of the superstars of Young Voices. We have a lot of them on. We don't play favorites. She's one of our favorites. Um, Gabrielle Hoffman, the program before we always enjoy talking to her. We're going to talk a little conservation today. How are you, ma'am? Welcome back. Good to be with you, Andrew. Thank you for having me on doing well. She is, she is an award-winning writer, very talented writer. She has a list of credits that will make anybody jealous. Of course, a young voices contributor. She's got a lot of irons in the fire. And one of those irons in the fire is you had yourself a very busy earth day. You're of course, an avid outdoorist. We're talking conservation today. What did you do for Earth Day? Because I was up in West Virginia, which if you're going to be somewhere, West Virginia is a darn fine place to celebrate nature and the outdoors. Tell us about your Earth Day, because you kept yourself rather busy, didn't you? I did. I was actually in Nebraska for a conservation-related summit, which we can go into detail as the conversation progresses. So I wasn't really outdoors on Earth Day itself, but I made up for it over the weekend doing some trout fishing in the mountains on the Virginia-West Virginia border, and I caught myself some decent brown and rainbow trout. Can't complain. Yeah, that's good stuff, especially if you cook it just right. Let's start right there. We've had this conversation before, but I always want to assume, make sure the audience is with us on this. I want to start with the nomenclature again, because people use these words and I don't think they put all the full meaning behind them. When we're talking conservation, when we're talking environmentalism, as it is currently uh, conducted, especially in the social media realm where we're discussing some really touchy and sensitive issues, Kind of define those terms for us a little bit and why conservation is something you've really championed. You have a wonderful podcast, District of Conservation. 
Um, why is it you take that label, even though you're talking about environmental things, you're talking about regulatory things, just explain why that term is so meaningful to you and how you've kind of tried to reclaim that term in a lot of ways. Yeah, I'm not the only one doing it. I'm just probably one with a bigger platform that is keen on doing so. But it really is important to make a distinction between the various shades of environmentalism. Environmentalism isn't a one size fits all type of thing. It actually has a lot of shades, a lot of iterations. I think the best way to describe environmentalism is to put it into two camps. You have preservation, which really discourages kind of human input. It calls for no touching, no development or management of natural resources, kind of like a rewilding of practices. And you see that often on the environmental left, kind of the status quo environmental movement. They really do admonish free markets and capitalism. They don't really like that. And they want the heavy hand of government to dictate the outcomes relating to environment. And that can be problematic, of course, as we know. Conservation, on the other hand, I think is the more preferable shade of environmentalism that I think most people would agree with and support. And the United States, all things considered, has been a leader in environmentalism with obviously putting into rules, putting rules into effect that do contribute to cleaner air, cleaner water, stewardship practices, and a balanced use approach. And conservation calls for the wise management of natural resources. Doesn't say no management, but the wise management. And that can include for recreational purposes, whether you're recreating on lands to fish and hunt, or even if you're making a livelihood, such as whether you're doing timber, grazing, farming, cattle ranching, and other related intensive activities that a lot of people admonish and take for granted, especially when they don't know where their food comes from. So it really is easy to define what environmentalism is. Oftentimes conservation is conflated with preservation. And a lot of people in the environmental left love to conflate the two terms. They often say conservation is very anti-capitalistic. It has to be this way. And that's intentional. That's intentional for them to kind of distort what the meaning of it is. And that's why I think many people on the right are often really ambivalent and kind of reluctant to champion the environmental cause because it is so misunderstood what this term is. So I think many like me, a handful like me in media and hopefully in grassroots and other niche areas are able to kind of reclaim that term. I've been doing so for the past few years on my podcast, through my writings. And a lot of people are trying to make the distinction because like any other charged term, I think the left loves to distort what things are. They distort what disinformation is. They distort what Uh, the truth is, or things of that sort. So conservation is really easy to distort if it goes unchallenged. So I think that's that's kind of the long end of it, but a good summary of what we're dealing with and what we're up against and why conservation has to be accurately portrayed. One of the big differences between environmentalism as it's currently, again, it's a broad term. You can make it mean just about anything you want to make it mean. I'm just in the parlance, especially on social media, as we see it thrown around in the news media. Environmentalism has gotten very doom and gloom. It's gotten very fatalistic in a lot of ways. You talked about this when you're writing it inside sources, though. Part of conservation is starting from a positive viewpoint of like, yeah, there's a lot of things we can work on here, but things are conservation wise, environmental wise in, in America. Things are actually pretty good, especially if you kind of take a global perspective, things like water, things like land use. Talk about that for a minute, because sometimes we don't talk about the good news and that skews your perspective. And then when we go on to talk about things like we're going to in a minute, like land use, this is the important missing piece to a lot of this, because people need to understand, yes, you can responsibly do this stuff and still be environmentally minded. That's missing from this conversation, isn't it? 
Absolutely. And I think, again, it's intentional. It's to scare people. It's to fear monger, to say that we're in a very perilous time when it comes to the environment. And then when studies come out, empirical data and university statistics or, or studies that come from universities, it actually points to the fact that maybe not all is awry with the American environmental landscape. A lot of good things have happened. We've rectified a lot of problems that were emanating from the 60s and 70s. Pollution is arguably way down. There's still some problems with it, of course. Uh, water is a lot cleaner today than it was half a century ago. You can drink water. And there are certainly areas across the country where they still have to deal with water crises and all. But I would say overall, most drinking situations, water situations, they're improving or doing a lot better. When it comes to land use and also conserving wildlife, we have a lot more wildlife today than ever before, especially the turn of the 20th century, largely because of hunters and anglers and their contributions through excise taxes paid on hunting licenses, fishing licenses, guns and ammunition. So we have a lot of things to celebrate. That's what me and Mandy Gunasekera, formerly EPA chief of staff to the most recent Trump EPA administrator, Andrew Wheeler, So we wanted to highlight the positive contributions of the environment because there's a lot to extol. There's a lot of good things. We are reducing our emissions like no other. We're at historic lows of emissions um, in terms of production for that. People are looking to natural gas and they're looking to nuclear as a way to curb your emissions, but to still have reliable energy and to not be wholly dependent on our adversaries for energy sources. So we wanted to highlight, obviously, the positive things that are happening. And there are many things that are happening And even outside government, a lot of positive conservation uh, successes, excuse me, are occurring. We see more and more people voluntarily getting involved to, let's say, clean up water streams, to recover imperiled species, to advocate for different causes more effectively than, let's say, top-down solutions or the federal government will do. We see a lot of private companies and nonprofits stepping up big time. I highlighted in a policy focus with IWF that there are, let's say, three examples of voluntary action or market innovations occurring, one being uh, the issue for, let's say, addressing wildfires, high-intensity wildfires. There's a nonprofit called Blue Forest Conservation that likes to, that's putting out a a thing called the resiliency bond to help with kind of the funding mechanism shortcomings with respect to funding uh, forest management efforts. And that really is going to start taking off. Dell, I'm Andrew Donaldson. This is going to be fun. We're going to go down to Georgia, talk a little Georgia politics, a little Georgia policy, a little Georgia education. And this is a Georgia feller. He didn't start that way, though. He's actually, you scratch him hard enough, there's a little West Virginia still underneath that. Uh, our friend Jason Downey, he's an attorney. He's also uh, the sitting chairman, Board of Education for the state of Georgia. How are you, sir? I'm good. How are you? Fantastic. Good talk to you. Uh, you, you're like me. The accent's gotten a little softer, but it'll come out. We'll, we'll get to hills and hollers and yonders here in a minute. It'll start sneaking out, won't it? That's right. Um, just for clarification purposes, you are a political appointee by Governor uh, uh, Brian Kemp. So we'll lay that out on the table, but your opinion are yours and yours alone. But let's make sure everybody knows that. Let's just start right there because we had some news this week. We had, uh, of course, the Georgia governor debate for the primary for the Republican Party. There's just no way to talk about Purdue without going back to what happened in Georgia in the Senate runoffs. This is where this whole story changes because we had January 6th and the Georgia runoffs. That's kind of the the 
path break on the narrative for political path that we're on right now. You were there. Go back to that moment because the national narrative for the Georgia runoffs was Trump showed up and it all went sideways. Is that how it felt for you when those Georgia runoffs happened and uh, both Senate seats flipped blue? Yeah, I think so. You had the the two runoffs and the thing about David Perdue, and again, full disclosure, I, I am a Brian Kemp appointee. I'm a friend of the governor. I support the governor. I, I, you can go to my Twitter account and see some of the things I said after the debate the other day that the governor had with David Perdue. I have never been a David Perdue fan. I didn't support David Perdue in the primary when he ran in 2014 against Jack Kingston. I supported Jack Kingston at the time. So I have never been a fan of David Perdue. But David Perdue has always been a lazy campaigner. And so one of the, the issues that happened in that, uh, that race against Senator John Ossoff was that David Perdue didn't show up to the debate. And so John Ossoff had an hour that he could just point at an empty podium and say, where is my opponent? He's not here. And that's sort of been the narrative throughout David Perdue's political career. He's always been a, a lazy campaigner. And now he's got Trump doing his evil work for him, so to speak. Trump is really targeting Governor Kemp because he, he thinks, of course, we know that Donald Trump, if you betray him, that's just the worst thing you can do. And that's what's happening now with this race. But yeah, it all goes back to Trump's involvement way back when, uh, January 5th and 6th, when that happened. And it's been downhill ever since. Now, and to be fair here, uh, Kelly Loeffler was the other candidate in that race. Um, I'm trying to think of a way to describe it. She may be the least charismatic stump speech candidate I've ever seen in my life. Uh, and I was represented by Nick Ray Hall for many, many years. So that's saying something. Um, yeah. he, that's a West Virginia reference. Y'all go look it up on your own time. Uh, she was a terrible candidate. I mean, just like she, you could not put her, if, if you were doing a TV show, you couldn't put her on TV. She's that bad with a microphone. Um, even with that all said, though, uh, John Ossoff and uh, Raphael Warnock both won their Senate races because it was a special election. Raphael Warnock is up. One thing the national narrative skipped over because they were so busy talking about Trump. Talk about Senator Warnock for just a second, though, because that race. I, I, am I in the minority with some of our friends here? I think he's going to be a really tough out because that race got personal. It got really, really ugly, and it's in recent memory. I don't think people have forgotten. Talk about that for a minute because the national narrative kind of skipped over that a little bit, but that race got really, really nasty in the state of Georgia, didn't it? It really did. The, the thing about uh, Kelly is, and I've, I've known Kelly for, for a little while, I supported Kelly as well, but when you have to understand when Johnny Isaacson, Senator Johnny Isaacson, retired, it gave Governor Brian Kemp the opportunity to appoint someone. And this is where the falling out began. And there's actually a book about this that a friend of mine, Greg Bluestein from the AJC wrote. And it's about this whole uh, timeline of what happened in Georgia politics. And it really began with Governor Brian Kemp beating Stacey Abrams in 2018 and how everything came from that and was born out of that. So when Governor Brian Kemp appointed Kelly Leffler as senator to replace Johnny Isaacson, there, Donald Trump was very mad. Now, he was president at the time, and he really wanted Representative Doug Collins to be that person. That was his hand-picked person. And when that didn't happen, that was when the betrayal began in Donald Trump's eyes. And Doug Collins decided to jump in and run anyway. We had what was called a jungle primary, where everybody's up at one time. Doug forced Kelly Leffler to move further right. And the whole reason that the governor appointed her was thinking that she could appeal 
to what we call the Cobb County soccer moms in a lot of ways. Some people call them that. I just I just call them, you know, the Cobb County moderate voters, if you will. That's sort of a microcosm of where we are in the state of Georgia. Cobb County is a county right outside of Atlanta. And I think he hoped that Kelly would be able to appeal to those voters. But when Doug Collins jumped into the race, it forced Kelly to move further right. She had some ill-fated uh, commercials, which compared her to Genghis Khan. It was it was not the best campaign in the world. But then we got down to, through the jungle primary, it was Raphael Warnock and Robert Warnock and Kelly Leffler. And then it, yeah, it got really nasty right there at the end. Um, and I will say this, that, you know, Robert Warnock, I have, I have met him. He is a very dynamic individual, uh, very charismatic. It's going to be interesting what happens now. Herschel Walker is probably going to end up being the Republican nominee running against him in that race. And I, it's, um, it, it may get nasty again. Uh, and, and when I say nasty, nasty against Herschel and then nasty against, against Senator Warnock. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. I look like a hurt tell. Okay, he's back, one of our favorites. We lean on these guys, uh, elections-daily.com. We were early adapters to them way back in the day, our friend Eric and company, and this man has been on multiple times on the program. You're going to see him a lot this year. I promise you they do great work. Joe Zemanski, how are you, sir? I'm doing well, sir. I'm doing well. It's the end of my uh, spring semester here at George Mason. We're just finishing up here. Uh, so I'm ready to get, I'm getting ready to head back, uh, back home to Pennsylvania. Uh, by the end of uh, this upcoming week, I'm getting ready to head back home to Pennsylvania where there's going to be a lot of stuff happening there. But I know uh, we want to focus on another uh, key Midwestern state today uh, with their big primary last night in Ohio. Yeah, you'll get home just in time to vote, won't you? Uh, oh, yeah. Let's talk about Ohio. It was a marquee matchup for all the wrong reasons. Let's start with the Senate race. Uh, back home where I come from, we call that a big old hot mess. Uh, our British friends would call it an omni shambles. Uh, <laughs> I watched your coverage of it on the YouTube channel. You guys do excellent live feeds on these elections nights. I've gotten to watching you folks and your uh, partnership with Decision Desk. Did I detect a little bit of disappointment there when all of a sudden J.D. Vance kind of started pulling away at kind of about the eight o'clock hour or so? Were you surprised that this turned into kind of a comfortable win for him, about a seven, eight point win? You know, I, I think we had some members of the panel who were more disappointed than others. Uh, you know, personally, I, I didn't think Vance was the worst of the field personally. Uh, I thought some of the comments made by Josh Mandel and, you know, some just a lot of the stuff that he was saying to try and uh, gain primary support, I thought would actually hurt him more. 
in a general election than anything J.D. Vance has said uh, so far. But I was surprised at how about how comfortable it was becoming. I, I don't think we expected the election day vote, go, vote to go that heavily for Vance as it did in a lot of key counties. Uh, he overtook Matt Dolan, who ended up finishing third. Uh, in a lot of uh, counties through election day vote where Dolan uh, led with the early vote. And then when election day vote started coming in, uh, that's where Vance had overtaken in a couple of key counties and around the Dayton and Cleveland uh, areas. Uh, so, you know, I think I was surprised by the margin in the end. I wasn't necessarily surprised in the uh, result. Uh, you know, Vance, after the Trump endorsement, had become one of the three favorites. It was pretty clearly by the end of the week, a three race race between him, uh, Mandel and Matt Dolan, uh, you know, and in the end, I think uh, those undec those undecideds that were left, you know, they looked at the Trump endorsement and said, you know what, J.D. Vance is our guy, going to go in there on election day, going to check his name by the ballot. And, uh, you know, it was a race that was close, but it was, I think, the margin of victory for Vance uh, still shows, I think, the effect of the Trump endorsement, maybe not to the level it used to be, but still shows that effect there and how it can really change a campaign around, uh, especially considering before that endorsement, Vance was pretty uh, clearly languishing around third or fourth place. Yeah, and this one was really clear when I was watching y'all's coverage on elections.hedgedaily.com on the YouTube channel. It was really clear cut because, of course, the first returns you get on an election, the way we do things nowadays, is the early voting comes in first, and then you're waiting for the election day stuff, especially the way Ohio had it set up. And it was exactly like you said, just as soon as the election day stuff started coming in, especially Cuyahoga County, which is Cleveland area, um, as soon as the election day, it was really apparent within, what, 15, 20 minutes, those first yep. three or four returns, that, oh, yeah, the election day had swung to Vance with credit words due, that's got to be the Trump endorsement. Cause like you said, Vance bounced between third, fourth. He was second a couple of times. Gibbons took the lead for a while. Mandel had a lead for a while. Dolan kind of had a late surge in a way. There's just no other way to do this. Uh, I don't think JD Vance wins this without that endorsement. No, I, I, I think, uh, you know, there was a lot of criticism from people who who likes the you know who like Trump and also uh, people who don't like him the whole bunch. But people in my circle who who work in both and work in that area who say, you know, Vance was not really running uh, the best campaign uh, until he got the Trump endorsement. A lot of people agree that's where that was really turning around. Uh, you know, without that endorsement, if you know Trump endorses someone else like a Mandel or a Gibbons, or if he had stayed out of it completely, uh, I don't think JD Vance is the nominee currently, but that's not the world we're living in. Uh, and it shows, I think, the extent that the Trump endorsement works currently. And I think I sh it shows how important it is in, a, in a, such a split field like we had in Ohio. I mean, we, we can't forget Mike Gibbons still got around 13% of the vote as well, which is not in such a highly competitive race. It's certainly not a, you know, uh, on, you know, a bad number, and it's not a number that didn't have an effect on this race. Yeah, Vance won with about 32, 33%. That'll get refined upwards. Let's call it 35-ish. That's not exactly a ringing endorsement, but it's a split field, like you said. Okay, let's preview the race. Uh, Tim, Tim Ryan won very comfortably. He won 70, 30-ish. Uh, what does that race look like in Ohio? He's trying to moderate. He's trying to do kind of the classic moderate, blue-collar, little more Youngstown than D.C. kind of sort of thing for Ohio. How's he going to match up with the new populist nativist J.D. Vance, who is coming off a big win? You know what? I still think Ohio is going to be one of the hardest, hardest states for Democrats to do anything uh, in 2022. You know, it was a state that voted pretty relatively to the right of the nation uh, in, in 2020, actually. I mean, even though the margin 
uh, between Trump and Biden was basically the same as it was between Trump and Hillary in uh, 2016. You know, we have to remember the country moved three points to the left in terms of nationwide popular vote uh, compared for, in 2020 compared to 2016. So Ohio was actually more to the right of the nation in 2020 than it was in 2016. You know, this is just a state that's really become very, very hard uh, for Democrats to win. Uh, there's not really expansion in the right areas. Uh, parts of suburban areas and mostly especially the exurbs uh, in Ohio are very, very deep red. Uh, you still have some very populous areas like Maho uh, populous areas like Mahoning where Youngstown is and around the Akron and Canton areas that are trending Republican and these areas do have a lot of people in them. Ohio has truly kind of just kind of been the basin of this white working class vote uh, trending to Republicans kind of like Iowa has kind of lost its swing state vote. Uh, swing state status in the last two years has become more of a uh, Republican tinge state compared to, you know, 2004, 2008, 2012. So, you know, I think it's going to be really hard. I think Tim Ryan is definitely the best that Democrats could have gotten in terms of that race. But especially with Mike DeWine coming uh, winning renomination, he's heading up that governor's ticket again. Uh, you look at the number and total votes between the two primaries. Yeah. I, I, ju I just don't see it in Ohio. I think Vance wins relatively comfortably, probably around eight to 10 points. Uh, I think, you know, Ryan, uh, I think does overperform uh, the, the margins that I think we could see in the governor's race. But uh, I think I think it's going to be very, very hard for him to pull out a win. And the fundamentals are really just not there for him. Yeah, I mentioned Youngstown on purpose because uh, Joe Zemanski from Elections Daily joining us. I mentioned Youngstown on purpose because I know you guys, you love your numbers and you love your swing counties. Uh, Mahoning County, uh, which is Youngstown Alliance, that's one of the biggest swing counties in the country. They went Obama, huge Trump, huge back to Biden. It's, I mean, eye-popping numbers, 30, 40 point swings. Isn't that indicative of just how volatile Ohio has been over the last few years? And is that where you start talking about Man, I don't know if Tim Ryan can keep this to single digits or not unless J.D. Vance shoots himself in the foot. Yeah, I think that's that's really going to be the issue. And this is where I think why I do think that actually Vance was a better nominee for Republicans than I think Josh Mandel was. You know, Vance, as much as he's run, you know, run in a certain way, we cannot forget is still a very well-educated individual who, you know, is a, you know, a Yale graduate. You know, this is not a guy who's going to shoot himself in the foot on a debate stage against Tim Ryan, you know, in college, he would have been in that situation. He's gone on book tours before he understands how to talk to people. You know, it's not a hard thing uh, to see, you know, I think Vance do better. I think it's not a hard thing to see him do well. And uh, I, I really do think that, you know, de we Democrats are kind of overestimating the idea that Vance is going to somehow uh, underperform. Uh, compared to the compared to the norm that we're starting to see in Ohio, I think that's actually kind of an overrated statement uh, compared to some of the analysts. Now, I would ask you about the Ohio House races, except we didn't have any. Uh, we only had one or two because the maps got hung up in court. Uh, is this something we're going to be seeing in other states? Uh, I know a couple of years ago in North Carolina, we did three elections in 18 months because of the court rulings on maps. Is Are we going to see this in other places going forward? Because a lot of these states, there's still some court holdups. This is probably more dramatic in Ohio than some of these other states are going to be. But is this something we still need to keep an eye on? Well, yeah, obviously, while Ohio, uh, by basically sheer force of refusing to listen to the state Supreme Court, uh, did get their House of Representatives elections uh, to uh, their their congressional maps and their congressional elections going last night. 
uh, but their state house and state senate uh, races, unlike Indiana, uh, were not able to be completed because those maps still have not been passed yet. And we're going to see this problem kind of probably come up in New York, where it looks like they've pushed back uh, congressional and uh, state senate races back to August. But right now, it seems like they're going to keep their statewide and state assembly races uh, in the earlier date because of court orders there so far. Uh, you know, this is a possibility in Missouri. This is a possibility maybe even in Kansas, uh, where, where we're starting to, where we're still playing around with court and map issues. You know, this is not an issue that's gone away, surprisingly, uh, as this issue's become uh, much more bloody in the way of redistricting, you know, it's not something that we've uh, gotten rid of yet. So uh, uh, New York really is kind of a state to watch right now where we could see, again, you know, separate elections for key races uh, within the, the summer time period. So, you know, it's certainly still something that's going on. And, you know, it'll be interesting to see if it happens anywhere else. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned uh, Governor DeWine won very comfortably. Uh, there were some protest votes, but there, that race was not in doubt. Uh, Nan Wally will uh, match up against him. It's former Dayton mayor. Uh, what line do you put on that? Is that pretty much safe? Is it lean? What do you think for the Governor DeWine? I think for Governor DeWine, it's pretty safe. Uh, you know, he's had some issues with the, as we saw last night, he did get under 50% of the total vote last night uh, because, of, because of other candidates uh, involved in the race. He, uh, his margin of victory was around 20 points, I believe, over Jim Renacci uh, in that race. Uh, you know, I, I think DeWine is fine. Most people believe DeWine will win comfortably. You know, uh, Republicans, they may have been frustrated with him, but they're not very likely to be so frustrated with him that they vote him out, that they vote with him out or vote don't go the vote uh, for him because they're going to be turning out for other races. Uh, you know, DeWine's popular. You know, he's just kind of the, the similar model, I think, of Rod Portman in 2016. You know, he's going to be very hard to beat. Nan Whaley's not a bad candidate, I think, by any means. She's been seen as someone as a rising star. But I think her place in the future could be potentially in a Dayton-based congressional seat if a fair map is drawn. I don't think it'll be the governor's office. Uh, we have this currently rated a safe Republican, and it's pretty hard for me to see that change. Welcome back to Hertel. Okay, it is the loudest story in news and culture and politics. I suspect it will be this way probably for at least a month or so, if not longer. Let's go to one of our legal experts to break it down for us. He's returning to the show. One of our real good friends, Bert Lyko, attorney extraordinaire out in the Portland area. He's also a longtime OG at Ordinary-Times.com. He has one of them fancy emeritus titles, which means he does it when he wants to, and I'm very jealous of him for that. My friend, how are you today? Andrew, I am uh, I am beside myself with what has happened at the Supreme Court, but very very thrilled that you have invited me on your show to talk about it. Yeah, we're we're thrilled to have you. Okay, when I talked about this on the show uh, yesterday, I was basically reading. You sent it to me as an email, and then we turned it into an article because that's how we do things at Ordinary Dash Times on the fly. Sometimes um, you did a quick little write up of it. Let's start with some nomenclature though, because I, I want to make sure everybody's on the same page because we are dealing. We're dealing with one of the loudest cultural things of our lifetime. Uh, I put it this way on the radio this morning. Th this really is um, the convergence of the last 30 years of the culture wars. This is what everybody's been building for. This is what everybody's kind of been gearing up for. This is, this is going to be loud like something we've never seen before. 
but we're dealing with black and white law here. So let's get our nomenclature right. Roe v. Wade, everybody knows that that's the abortion law. What does and doesn't Roe v. Wade do? And in addition to that, because it's going to get lumped in here, Casey versus Planned Parenthood, which you, you got to have them together to understand the full picture here. Just nomenclature rise real quick. Just kind of overview those four so we know what we're talking about. All right. Um, you can spend uh, about three weeks on this in a con law class in law school. So I can get deep, deep, deep into the weeds if you like. Um, I would start uh, the, the case history uh, with, um, I'd start it with Griswold versus Connecticut. That's a 1967, I think, case from, uh, from Connecticut, obviously, dealing with access to contraception. And that case decided that uh, individuals have a fundamental right to have access to contraception uh, based on this notion of a right to privacy. Now, you will search the Constitution of the United States in vain for the word privacy. Uh, it's not there. Griswold used uh, what's called penumbral reasoning, saying that there are certain things that exist within the scope of different enumerated constitutional rights. The First Amendment, the Fourth Amendment, the Fifth Amendment, the Ninth Amendment, and the Fourteenth Amendment. And all of these enumerated rights have been interpreted to protect certain kinds of privacy. So uh, the idea didn't originate in the Griswold case. It goes all the way back. Uh, the, the earliest formal discussion of it goes to a law review article in Yale Law Review by Louis Brandeis in 1890. So we're not talking about something that the Griswold court made up out of whole cloth, uh, but it was the first time it really got applied, at least in a very explosive sort of way in that Griswold case with me so far. Yeah, I'm with you so far. And real quick, since you brought it up, there has been this all over social media today that uh, Roe v. Wade was essentially a privacy case. That's an oversimplification, even though the basis in the Griswold law was privacy. That's an oversimplification of what Roe v. Wade does as you go on to further explain it, right? Right. Um, it's important to understand that that Griswold case took this idea that Louis Brandeis had about a privacy right being one of the unenumerated rights and put that into law because the Roe court took a look at, at the circumstances of that case, a direct challenge to a Texas law criminalizing abortions and said privacy is one of the reasons why uh, we can't have a law criminalizing abortions. That's not consistent with the constitution because among other things, the Constitution protects the right to privacy. Getting an abortion is a very private sort of decision, one of the most intimate private decisions a person could make. So that is one of the foundations that is mentioned in the Roe case. The Roe case also goes directly to the Ninth Amendment and says you have a right to an abortion that you can trace just to the Ninth Amendment that says there are unenumerated rights and the ninth provides one of those. It didn't do a real good job of articulating what that right is. And this is where the Roe case has got a lot of criticism. It's a little foggy on the textual foundation for what becomes a, a limited right to an abortion. So uh, the second thing to understand about Roe is it does not provide an unlimited right to an abortion. Roe creates a, sort of a sliding scale as a pregnancy advances. So in, it, it decides 
and there's no real good legal precedent for it. Uh, it just says that you have uh, a pregnancy divided into three trimesters. Uh, the first one-third of the pregnancy, the second one-third, the last one-third. And as you advance through the pregnancy, the state's interest in regulating that abortion, regulating potentially up to the point of criminalizing it, uh, will, will grow. So in the first trimester, the state has a very minimal interest as compared to the individual's autonomy in deciding whether or not to have that abortion. And then by the time you get to the third trimester, the state's interest has grown powerful enough that it can override the individual's decision. And the third concept that comes out of Roe that becomes important when we get to Casey 20 years after that uh, is this idea of viability. And viability gets to be really the turning point, both in Roe and especially in cases that come later. Viability is defined as the point that a fetus can survive on its own outside the womb. The case does not say what degree of technological assistance is necessary for the fetus to survive outside the womb. And that's another reason that you can criticize the reasoning in the Roe case. As medical technology improves over time from 1973 when Roe was handed down to today, um, a prematurely born baby can survive a lot longer because we have better technology right now and, and can, be, can survive uh, more and more prematurely, I should say. So um, that's, that's the basic idea of Roe, that you have a, um, a sliding scale of the state's interest over time coming to be, uh, coming to overrule an individual's interests. And there, there's a, a whole theoretical framework uh, that I have, a number of other lawyers have, that, uh, that we, can, we can go into, and that's uh, a real interesting rabbit hole. But that's the core ideas of Roe. There's other ideas too, actually, but we don't need to get into them today. How hard is it? Because here's kind of the, we, we know the cultural side of this. How hard is it though, when you're talking about the case law and you laid out a little bit of, you know, case law built on case law, it, it's a, it's a building thing. Mm -hmm. When you're dealing with this kind of case law, where you're also trying to deal with a medical certainty, and a medical certainty that has a very uh, debatable point like viability. We've already talked about, you know, uh, we normally now uh, 20 week fetuses are viable outside the womb, these sort of things. Isn't there just an inherent problem in trying to do case law with something that even the medical folks can't really tell you a good answer on? And we're trying to give a definitive answer on. Is it too much to say that this is one of those points of law where the law is just inadequate to try to explain this and there, there's just always going to be a tension here no matter what you do? There, there will always be tension about this um, because this is such a morally fraught issue. And people of very, very good faith and very good morality are always going to disagree about this. That will never, ever change. It has never, ever changed since thousands of years ago when abortions were uh, first done with different kinds of uh, chemical inducements, uh, whether that was something that should be done or shouldn't, uh, ancient peoples discussed and debated amongst themselves. Uh, we shouldn't be so arrogant as to think that we will resolve as difficult an issue of this, in, uh, particularly in these modern times.
Welcome back to Heard Tell, Andrew Donaldson. This is going to be good. We're going to talk a little healthcare. Another of our great Young Voices contributors, uh, Elise Amedro. I didn't say disease. I practiced hard on it. Uh, great writer. Uh, she's been writing about healthcare stuff. Ma'am, how are you? Thank you so much for the time today. I'm doing great. It's good to be here. It is. I appreciate your time very much. Let's start big picture before we delve into some of the writing you've been doing. Um, I want to do a little perspective because we we seem to have some really well-worn worn narratives in America media, especially the news media, especially social media, about our healthcare system. Give us a little bit of perspective, though, because, you know, if you listen to Twitter, people are dying in the streets and it's horrible and it's the worst healthcare system ever. And or there's people who's like, yay, the free market is the best thing ever. We know neither of those is true. Um, you've spent a lot of time overseas. You've spent time in America. What would you say the actual state of our healthcare system is? Because it's kind of been, and you wrote about this, it's been pretty static since the ACA, uh, Obamacare, whatever you want to call it. Not a lot has changed. So what's the current status of our healthcare system if you take an objective viewpoint of it? Yeah, objectively, we spend a lot of money on healthcare in the U.S. The government does and the private sector does. So I think the biggest lie that people believe is that this is a free market. Uh, healthcare is by no means a free market. There are about well, one in two dollars in healthcare that comes from the from the public sector. So we're really not in a free market system now. There is more uh, market involvement here, perhaps, than in the rest of the world in, in many places. But that doesn't mean that the private sector here is unimpeded either. There are lots of healthcare regulations, and I think those two things together—the fact that there's a lot of regulations and still a lot of control from the public sector that actually drives up our prices. So we spend more, that is very true. We spend more money per capita on healthcare than any country in the world, um, but that's not the full story. It's not because of the free market. There, there is so much more going on. And, and part of it is just that the, the government has done such a great job getting involved in every single aspect of our healthcare system. And that's really the two-edged sword when we're talking about healthcare in America right now, isn't it? Is that there's all this money involved, but there's also all these strings about where the money goes. And then when you go to the private sector side, there really is some really definitive funnels of where all the money goes and where's the, where the money is to be made, just to be frank about it. How unique is that to the world, though? And I, I know people talk about things like socialized medicine or single payer or European style or whatever you want to talk about. How unique in the world is our system of healthcare, where we have both of those and we have this absolute river of money going through it? And we have generally pretty good health care, but the problem is we're not really getting the bang for the buck for it, are we? No, that's absolutely correct. The, to, to go back in history a little bit, in the 40s, we started having uh, wage controls uh, due to the war, and that's when employers started offering health care. That's a pretty unique thing in the world. There are very few countries where employers offer health benefits to employees, and that came about because um, they couldn't raise the wages, so they just offered new benefits. After the war, we solidified this, so we codified it in the law. The IRS says employers are exempt from taxation whenever they provide you know, that, that money that they give of the wages to the employer, employees for health benefits does not go um, taxed. Uh, but past that, in the 60s, we realized, wait, not everyone's an employee. Some people um, cannot work uh, because they have disabilities, um, and some people are too old to work, they're retirees. And so what do we do for, for those people? And that's when um, uh, Medicaid and Medicare came into the picture. And we started you know, involving the government much more in, in our healthcare system. And so 
over time, that actually has led to a huge number of people being covered by Medicaid and Medicare. And while like, our quality remains very high, like it, it, you're, you mentioned earlier, people are not dying left and right. We have excellent care in the United States, despite all of the criticism that can be validly you know, expressed. But we've, we've seen just how much this intrusion of the government and then the way we regulate what counts as you know, coverage, what counts as um, you know, good care, uh, that, that actually has led to an increase in prices. You mentioned the history of it going back to the 40s. I, it seems to me, because I tend to put history on a lot of the things I deal with, even if it's an economic or a political or a healthcare issue like this is, and this is all three of those wrapped into one, the post-World War II era really shaped America as it is now. That's where we got the explosion in population. We got the explosion in economic growth. And that's when the healthcare system became, well, we have all this com- competition for jobs. So all these jobs started offering healthcare benefits because they were competing for all these people and for all this economic growth. Well, we're 60, 70 years down the road from there. Does that model still work in America? Because that's the model as it's set up. The government's doing a lot of patching of the holes between that. But is the base assumption of, well, the employers are going to provide health care. That's really where the debate is on all this, isn't it? It is. And there are several issues now. Like you said, over time, the situation has devolved into something that's not really sustainable. On the one hand, because healthcare costs has, have grown so much, um, we have a, you know, we have a, a hard time providing health insurance to people at an affordable rate. So employers spend, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten thousand dollars per person for, for insurance. And that's a really high cost. Like whenever you want to bring on a new employee, you bear that cost that the employee may or may not see because not, not every employee pays the premiums and most employees do not pay the full premiums. So that's a, a challenge for small businesses that want to come online. How can they afford that? Like adding this burden uh, for each employee that they bring on. And then for Medicare, when it was first um, created, people like life expectancy was around 69 years old. So people would be covered by Medicare for a few years and then they'd pass away. Currently, um, thanks to advances in, in medicine, we have much longer lives. <laughs> and so people, you know, someone who retires today has a life expectancy well into the 80s, uh, which means that we're now giving people care for you know, 15 years. 20 years, that's very expensive and it's not sustainable at the rate that we're seeing it now. Yeah, Medicare and Medicaid is always going to be an issue. Uh, let's come up to the present moment, though. The dominant force in uh, the healthcare uh, debate and discussion and discourse has been the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare. Uh, we're 12 years down the road on it. We know what was promised. We know some of the jingoistic stuff, like, you know, like your doctor, you can keep it. We know that part of it. But it's been static. Uh, nothing's really changed uh, dramatically from that, despite Republicans saying they were going to repeal and replace it, which we always knew was a little bit of a, uh, a song and dance, which now we have the evidence they was. 12 years on, what did it do? What didn't it do? Because that's really the framework we need to take as far as going to, okay, what's our next steps in trying to improve healthcare here, isn't it? Yeah. So one thing that it promised, or at least uh, Obama on, his, on the, the campaign trail in 2008 promised that he was going to cut costs for a family of four by $2,500 a year. Well, our costs have like tripled or quadrupled since this happened. So this, since we passed Obamacare. So costs have not gone down. It is not, it has not been affordable. Um, has it covered everyone? Because we were saying, you know, um, we're going to 
protect patients. We're going to give them coverage. But we'll still have roughly 30 million people who are uninsured. That's about one in 10 Americans. Now, some of them don't want to be insured. There are reasons why the Obamacare design you know, went away at first. Everyone was supposed to have insurance or they would pay a penalty. That penalty went away. Um, but still, it's not done. It's not closed the coverage gap, you could say. What we have seen is lots of people benefiting from the Medicaid expansion. So many states expanded Medicaid coverage to people who were not previously eligible, people who didn't have uh, disabilities or didn't have an income below the federal poverty level. And that's been the main way through which people have gained coverage through the ACA. Now that coverage is not great and it is also um, pricey both to the federal government and to the states without seeing great improvements in health outcomes. That'll do it for Heard Tell, this very special edition twice on Sunday. Since this is different, after you've listened to this, do us a favor. Let us know what you think. Do you like it this way? Do you like it the other way? Reach out to us. Uh, show at gmail.com. show on the Twitter. And, of course, you can always comment on the YouTube page or on any of the podcasting platforms that you're listening and or watching this on. We always appreciate you. Make sure you're subscribing and sharing. That's very important to us. But let us know. Five great interviews this week. So until we see you again, wherever you and yours are across the street around the world. We hope you're doing well. We hope you're well fed. See you right back here for more Hertel next time. Y'all take care. All the music on Hertel is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.